Hey there, folks. Welcome in. Hopefully, uh, you all are having a lovely Thursday. If you're on the West Coast like me, late afternoon. Uh, if you're in New York or on the East Coast, like our guest is at, uh, lovely evening. And if you're somewhere in between or outside of that span, then whatever time of day it is, I hope you're enjoying it. Um, and we will get started in just a couple minutes. Obviously, still waiting on a few more people to uh, join. But uh, just wanted to say a couple quick things before we get started. The first is, uh, as always with these salons, um, I said and I will have a conversation, but we really welcome your uh, questions, comments, contributions. Um, and I always find that the best way to start that off is by talking about if you are drinking something, what you are drinking. So Osette, what are you drinking? Sorry, I got excited because my friend Claire is here and I haven't seen Claire in a really long time. So. Oh, that's exciting. <laughs> I've seen each other in a Zoom window, which is basically the same Because you don't see people anymore, man. So like, <laughs> I'm just really psyched to see my friends. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I totally I love it. you. <laughs> <laughs> um, hey, I am drinking a wonderful sparkling Chenin Blanc because I am working on a story for online, not for print, about how it should be the summer of sparkling Chenin Blanc because I really enjoy it. Yeah. And I don't know. I feel like we've done like, I don't know, canned cocktails have been a summer thing and like rosé is a summer thing, but like why not sparkling Chenin Blanc? That should be a summer thing too. I, it should be a year-round thing, in my opinion, but yes, definitely summer, too. <laughs> uh, and and for those of you who are not uh, familiar, I said, can you just give a little bit of background on uh, what it is you are professionally, uh, wh who you write for and what you're doing? Yeah, of course. Um, so I'm the associate restaurant editor at Food & Wine. Um, I work primarily on the print magazine, and my focus is that I edit um, Obsessions, which is basically our front of book section that tends to be more focused on trends and products. And like we do the occasional chef profile, but it's really, it's a really service driven um, column of the magazine, which I really love because you can take that in a lot of different directions. Like you can get chefs to recommend tools they like or ingredients that they're using. And you know, that's kind of where the restaurant aspect really comes into play for my job as well as like talking to those chefs you know, okay, how do you translate what you're doing in this restaurant for the home cook? And so that's that's the majority of what I spend my time doing in addition to a couple of other things at the magazine that I kind of have my hands in. Um, but yeah, so I've been at Food & Wine for about two and a half years now, which is kind of wild. That's awesome. Yeah, so Aset and I met last, or sorry, not last, God, time flies. September of Before. 2019, <laughs> not last <laughs> September, uh, on a uh, press trip in uh, California. And one of the things I was struck by right away is, um, you know, I've been on a number of press trips and um, I'm not trying to slander some of my fellow writers uh, and, and journalists, but sometimes you are on these trips and like people don't ask questions or they don't ask interesting or good questions. And I feel like, uh, and, and a couple of other people on the trip too, who just aren't here, so I'm not going to call them out by name, asked really good questions and really good questions because, you know, you were coming at it, I think at that point mm -hmm. as someone who was still, you know, and still like, are, like totally all of it. Yeah. Yeah. Like learning, but, but ask the kind of good questions that someone who is sort of just broad level intelligent and, ha and curious asks where like, you know, sometimes you need someone who asks the questions that are not, I don't want to say the answers weren't obvious. It's not that it's that they were, 
they're sort of questions from a different angle, which I really enjoyed. Um, and um, yeah, and so I think uh, so. I, I mean, I don't know. I, I it was a it was a fun trip for that and other reasons. Um, and uh, and so here we are, you know, a year and a half later. Um, I should mention too, and, and again, I encourage you all if you want to mention in chat or whatever what you're drinking. I hearkening back to a previous salon, I'm drinking a rosé of Cabernet Franc from Leo Jorgensen in uh, Oregon, which is delightful. It is. I actually grabbed this bottle, and when I grabbed it, I I was like oh, great, I have a bottle of Leo's Rosé. And then I grabbed it and it's so light in color. I was like, wait, is this actually white wine? And I'm just confused. And then I had to like look at the label, which has plenty of pink on it to confirm that in fact, this is a Rosé, which is delicious because we are, as I was saying, having a sort of un, uh, unexpectedly nice day here in Seattle. It was supposed to rain. So this was going to be an indoor salon, which would have been fine. But outside is nice because you all are spared my child running around and yelling. Um, or you miss out on that, you know, up to you all. So... So I wanted to start out by just talking with you because I know, you know, there's, there's a lot that there that I wanted to, to get to or that I'm curious about in your perspective. But the first place I wanted to start is I think we seem to be at this very unusual and very kind of you know, transformative or inflection point in the restaurant industry right now because of what's going on in the world and in this country where, you know, we are getting to a place where more and more people every day are vaccinated depending on where you are in the country, you may be able to return to something like full service indoors. I mean, you may have been doing that for a while in some places, but even in parts of the country where restrictions have been more um, intense and have been in place longer, everyone I talk to on the restaurant side is really seeming to feel like, okay, we are in this period of time, this next you know, month, two months, three months, where it's really going to open back up um, pretty pretty significantly, and I just was first curious, kind of like, what are you hearing? What are what are you hearing from restaurants and, and people in them in terms of what they're excited about and maybe what they're worried about? Yeah, so it's interesting. I went out to um, drinks and and dinner with a friend um, on like on Tuesday night, and it was um, at Dante actually the the cocktail bar, and it was just you know, we, we sat outside and I was honestly blown away by how packed it was down there. I mean, and it's every time I've gone out to eat in the, over the course of the past, I would say like month or two, it's been, you know, if there weren't, if there weren't plexiglass and if people weren't wearing masks, it would feel pretty like normal. And so that's been kind of, you know, it's a combination of, I think that a lot of folks are happy to have patrons back again, so long as those patrons are being respectful and you know doing all the things that are obviously necessary to do. But I feel like the real kind of um, friction that's come up that I've heard about more recently is like people not being sure if it's okay to indoor dine. Do hospitality workers want us to indoor dine? Do they like want us to do takeout only? Like, I feel like there's been a lot of kind of discussion over, you know, when you make a decision to dine, are you, are you doing it in the best interest of the person that's waiting on you? Or are you just doing it because you're like bored shitless in your apartment and want to go out? Which I like, I get, I get we all are, but um, yeah, it's just, it's interesting. And I've talked to, I've talked to some chefs who, you know, um, one chef who um, is a close friend of a colleague who opened a restaurant right in the middle of the pandemic, 
was very much like we need people to come in like come in and do like the 5:30 or the 8:30 slot so we can turn over tables and like you know we're we're masked up we have all these like air filters in place we want people to come so i think it's it's really hard i struggle with making the sweeping generalizations that i see some folks making sometimes where it's like you know nobody should do this everyone should do this like it's just not possible to do that in this landscape i think it really depends on like you know, one of my favorite restaurants, um, 232 Bleecker, I was chatting with their um, wine director on Sunday and he was like, yeah, you know, a lot of the staff is vaccinated, like we're pretty good. So I think, I think it really is kind of on a case by case basis. And you really, I mean, regardless, you have to kind of think about, okay, you know, what are the kind of, what are the pros and cons here? And like, am I actually doing what this business wants me to? And at the end of the day, if they're open, that's something to think about. Um, so I don't know, that's kind of like a long winded way, I guess, of saying that I find it really hard to make sweeping generalizations about dining out right now. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and you're, and I think you, you point out a very uh, an important thing, which is it's such a dynamic situation that literally, you know, a, a matter of a week or two can be a big difference in terms of, you know, depending on where in the country you are, you know, maybe restaurant employees have been eligible for vaccinations for quite a while. Maybe they're just becoming eligible. Maybe they're somewhere in that process. And that, you know, the, the, the calculus, at least in my mind, is very different when employees and patrons are vaccinated. Then I think you're kind of in this place where it's like, okay, yes, you know, probably good to just be give people a little bit of space, maybe you wear a mask to when you're coming and going, when someone's at your table. But like, at some point, are we kind of, you know, kind of like, we're sort of jumping at shadows at that point. Like, you know, th there's not much risk for anyone involved. But what I'm also curious about, said, is, is if what you've heard, you know, a thing that we've seen over the last year is a lot of fundamental transformations of restaurants, whether it's an increased emphasis on, to, on takeout and to go delivery, whatever, and increased, you know, certainly in places like New York, here in Seattle, lots of other things, you know, transformations of, of uh, sidewalks and city streets to uh, facilitate dining and, and more, and then additionally kind of, in some cases, maybe concepts that are, that were not, you know, fully fleshed out in a lot of places where you have a sort of restaurant that serves as both, you know, traditional restaurant where someone would go in and dine, but also sells you know sort of prepared goods and sells you know wine and the retail concept i know so again gross sweeping sweeping generalization so you know no no, rough no one's gonna hold you to this too much it's not a good year for generalization i know but but is, is your sense from from at least some of the places you've talked to that a lot of these sort of covid induced changes are going to stick or are a lot of places looking to get back to hey you know what yeah, it was great to have a little commissary shop because that's what we had to do, but we need that seating now. No, that's really interesting. So Food and Wine's um, deputy editor, Mel Hanchi, actually, so she um, operates a cafe in Easton, Pennsylvania, and during the, in addition to her job at Food and Wine, and so she, at the beginning of the pandemic, they basically transitioned to a grocery store and started doing like, like high-end, you know, pate, groceries, cheeses, things like that. And, um, you know, it was very much like a COVID result that they started offering that because frankly, they were like, we're not gonna have people sitting inside. It's not gonna work with 
with outdoor dining in the winter. But I talked to her about a month ago and she was like, you know what, like it's actually been a good part of our business. Like I think that's going to stick around. And so I think part of that depends on how much space you had to begin with and whether it's okay for you to like, just, you know, kind of allocate some of that to retail. If you're, you know, outside of New York City or LA, chances are you might have a little more room to be able to do that. Um, but when I think about restaurants like in New York City that have kind of pivoted, um, you know, one thing that I've been really into is seeing a lot of wine bars also serve as bottle shops, um, which, which I really love. Um, I think that's really awesome because frankly, if I'm going to a wine bar, it's because I really like how they're curating their wine list. And so I would love for that person to suggest retail bottles for me as well. So, and I feel like those shifts will also stick around. Like, I think, I think the marginal cost is pretty low ultimately. And so we will see a lot of that sticking around. Like, do I think that restaurants that have completely pivoted from like a, like a sit down dinner to like a sandwich shop, is that going to stick around? Probably not because the chef, like, you know, for example, one of my favorite restaurants in the world is this place called Pammy's in Cambridge, Mass. And they've pivoted to like an entirely different takeout menu that's like subs and like salads and like to-go food. And I know that's like not their vision. Um, so like I see them going back to what it was before, which I'm psyched about. But I think that for some of these other businesses, some of the changes will stick around and I'm kind of into it. And this, this kind of brings me to my, my last sort of question or, or thought in, in this line, unless you all have other thoughts or questions that you want to ask about. But, but the other thing I've been really curious about is, you know, my, I'll be honest, I have not, my, I haven't dined out in, a, in any sense. I haven't been served a meal by anyone other than basically my wife, who, and it's usually me cooking, or maybe a close family member, since, Noted. since March. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and last March. And so I haven't been dining in any of this period of time. But one thing that I think is really clear is like, because of the various safety protocols and just realities of COVID, um, a thing that we've seen a lot less of is fine dining, full service dining, you know, you're not seeing a lot of sit down tasting menus, maybe some stuff during the last summer when people were sitting outside, you know, a lot of it was even if you were in person dining, it was kind of quicker, it was minimal interactions, you know, keeping people safe as it should be. And what I wonder is, and this is a really hard one to, um, to for me to, to even get my own head around, and I'm curious if you have any thoughts on this, is from a, not so much from a restaurant standpoint, although it's a big part of it, but even from a just diner standpoint, are people really eager to get back to a pre-COVID world where, you know, they are being waited upon and, and having these sort of uh, relatively elaborate, time-consuming meals, or, and obviously some people will, yeah. I don't mean that's entirely gone away, but I'm just, I'm curious for my own sake and, and in general of, is that what people are gonna want or are people gonna be still kind of in a mindset of, yeah, we'll go sit down and eat, but like, I don't know that I want a 11 course tasting menu with wine pairings. Any read on that? Yeah, um, I want that again. <laughs> <laughs> Fair, um, I mean, I do too. Yeah, no, I mean, look, I know we talked about this like maybe a couple weeks ago. I really don't think slash hope that the whole 
you know, iPads replacing servers thing doesn't materialize. Like, I don't know. I feel like I, I mean, obviously it's a weirder thing now because I don't want to make unnecessary chit chat with my server right now because I like don't want to make them uncomfortable. And even if I'm wearing a mask, it's like you kind of try to keep things moving. But like in normal times, I really love interacting with whoever's at a restaurant. Like it's kind of what makes, I mean, like that's kind of one of the most awesome parts of that experience. It's like why you don't do takeout. You, you go and have that experience. But I do, I want to believe that people will look for that experience again. Do I think that it means, I don't know, I feel like every couple of months there's like a fine dining is dead, long live fine dining, kind of like confusing sort of um, narrative where we're not sure if we're like never doing the prefix thing again or if we actually are dying to do the prefix thing again. And I think that ultimately the situations that would call for you to go and have like a really beautiful multi-course meal at Gramercy Tavern will always exist. And those restaurants will always be the setting for those like really beautiful, wonderful memories. And so I don't know, I really, I, I have an appetite for it so long as it's safe to do so. And I, and I do feel that a lot of folks um, are gonna wanna do that at some point too. I mean, I think about like, um, you know, we were going to have a dinner for my sister-in-law's graduation this year at a restaurant that I really love, and we weren't able to do that. And I feel like opportunities like that, you want to do those things. For sure. Um, like, I can't wait to do that again. So, yeah, I think, I think we will. And I think for sure that, you know, uh, there's just no, there's no easy way or, or even uh, moderately difficult way to replace that experience um, at home or even in a sort of less service oriented restaurant setting where just like, you know, I mean, God, the things I miss are very simple in some ways, but like uh, one thing that has been, that has been made very clear to me in the last year plus is that the joy of just saying like, oh yes, I would like another of that. And then that other thing just shows up and I don't have to do anything I don't think I realized until this pandemic, and I've worked in restaurants for a very long time. I don't think I realized just how fundamentally that is a critical part of the experience of dining out. And to to the point, I'm not sure can be really replicated in a setting that, that is less than full service dining. Because in the end, if I have to get up and walk to a counter and say, you know, yeah, I want another cocktail, like, Will I do that? Yeah, of course. Will I internally grumble about it? Also, yes. Will I possibly get on Twitter and bitch about it? Definitely, yes. No, I mean, my friend Abigail just put something in the chat below and was like, and no more dishes. I, and it, it's true, like fundamentally, like people who have dishwashers versus people who don't are having very different pandemics. Like yeah. even with a dishwasher, it's like, it's a lot. It's just, you know there's there's just something special about having that kind of full service experience that you know you hope is being done in a respectful way in before times and after times that like why not yeah uh to the question about wine and wine costs i think this is actually a really interesting question and, and i'm not sure you know i think this is a one of the other questions especially as, you know for me being particularly wine focused as a professional before the pandemic that i'm also very curious about is sort of you know, we, uh, 
my co-host Adam Teeter and I have kind of gone back and forth on this. Um, not that we've disagreed per se, but just we've talked about it on the podcast a few times about sort of in this period of time over the last year when lots more people have kind of, you know, people who might've been, I'm going to get wine out at restaurants. You know, I drink most of my wine at meals. I'm getting glass pours. I'm getting bottles at restaurants. And I don't maybe buy a lot of wine at home because I'm not eating at home much. And suddenly that's flipped, obviously, from almost everyone. And maybe people are getting a little more of a like, well, wait a second, that wine that I used to get out at a restaurant cost me $80 a bottle, but at my local retail shop, it's $30 a bottle or $35 a bottle or whatever. What gives? And, you know, understanding how wine is priced in restaurants versus in retail settings is obviously a, a topic unto itself. I, I think for me, I think there's a real... Um, I think there's a real question here that is hard to answer at this point and we'll maybe see in the next few months. My sense is in the early going, there are so many people who are just so desperate to not do dishes, cook, you know, do anything at home that, and they want to have a nice bottle of wine because they're out and just every meal out is going to feel like a celebration for a while that I think in the first few months, people are just going to be like, whatever. I mean, that's already what I'm hearing and seeing is, you know, People are spending plenty of money. It's not, you know, they're not balking at menu prices. Six months down the road, a year down the road. I don't know. I think, I think there is something that is, that we're seeing, which is just the restaurant experience is irreproducible at home. And even if, even if you're an excellent cook, even if you have a deep wine cellar, as I was saying, there's something about the reality of being waited on, right? That very fundamental element of like, someone or someones are responsible for meeting your needs in a way that no one at your house is going to do, hopefully. I also feel like, you know, being waited on is definitely part of it, but I also think for a lot of people, it's the, the only way they're experiencing food from different parts of the world or different cultures that they're not able, like, I don't know, for me, it's like, I, I don't want to say that it's like I only go out because I like being waited on probably because that makes sure. me feel like a terrible person. Um, and it's like, I go out because I wouldn't be able to replicate that dish at home or I'm like really curious what ex chef is doing about something. But I also feel that to your point, there's also been a very real reduction in like a lot of people have lost their jobs. A lot of people are still kind of recovering from all of this and that's why I think it does, there is going to be a market for like the more casual dining out experience because those folks still want to and should be able to go out. Yeah. It's just like, you know, it's, it's a different kind of experience that they're looking for, but it doesn't mean that they aren't going to want to feel the same like special feeling of going out. I just think that there's like going to be another market there too for all the folks that are still kind of like figuring out what's next for them because of COVID. Absolutely. I want to switch gears a touch because um, I really feel like uh, another thing that's gone on over the last year for in, in different ways in both of our lives is this question of wine education and especially doing it online. And, you know, some of you who are, uh, who have been at, participated in other Discord events certainly know I've taught my share of wine classes online um, and Ozette has taken her share of wine classes online. And I think, you know, I was really curious if, I know you, um, I think you, you wrote, you've written about it, uh, For Food and Wine. Um, I will, I should have included the link. I spaced on that. Um, but uh, you, you can Google it. Uh, just a, a piece about kind of what taking the WSET, uh, I guess, level three exam was like online 
or two, no, double, mm-hmm. you wrote about two or three, and I can't even remember. Um, I kind of talked about two and three as like a joint experience. Okay. So I don't ask you, I'm not gonna ask you to, to repeat that uh, very well written <laughs> piece, but do you wanna just share a little bit about kind of what prompted this and then what your experience was like a little bit? And yes, please have another drink before you do. Yes, um, for sure. Um, uh, of course, the editor is prepared. Thank you, Joanna. That's so great. <laughs> um, we're actually running that story in our July print issue as well. Ray's just having me kind of like trim it down for print words. Um, but anyway, so um, yeah, I took the W set um, mainly because I don't really like being alone with my thoughts and I needed something to do. So I was like, I'm gonna sign up for school. Um, so level two was pretty, um, level two was pretty manageable, honestly. Like I took, so I took level two with great experience um, based in Boston and the whole thing was remote and the exam was also remote. And it was like, the exam was a very elaborate, like I had to record myself from three different angles with different cameras so that they could like know I was, it was like a real production. I was kind of like, oh wow, okay, we're taking this really seriously. Um, but yeah, level two, um, I think that level two was like a really great, like I, I didn't, I skipped over level one just because it seemed kind of like grapes, have you heard of them? Um, and it was like not, <laughs> not particularly exciting, but level two, the book is organized by, um, the book is organized by varietal, which is really helpful. Um, and it kind of like makes it pretty, it's like, okay, so like Riesling, here are all the places you might find Riesling or like, here are all the places you might find Pinot Noir. And it's a pretty, it's a pretty like cursory intro. Like the, the level two book is like, maybe I want to say like, a fifth of the size of the level three book. I think what I was most surprised by is the jump from level two to level three. Um, yeah, level two made me feel like really good about myself and level three made me feel really terrible about myself. Uh, <laughs> but I, um, yeah, so I guess um, I did level two over the summer, felt good about it and decided to take level three. Um, and that was a much more, that was a much trickier remote experience, mainly because level three's exam is a lot more in depth. Um, and that exam I went and took in person, which you have to, because there's a blind tasting component on it. Um, so it's like blind tasting two wines, multiple choice, and then like a bunch of essay questions and the essay questions are what really sucks. Um, so yeah, that was kind of the gist. And how, like, I feel like one of the hardest things about any, any exam that involves blind tasting, whether it's the Court of Master Sommeliers or WSAT or others, I mean, practicing for that is very difficult, I feel like, uh, even in the best of times. And in times when gathering with a group to taste together is probably not a wise activity. Like, what did you do to prepare? Yeah. Um, so I'm really, really fortunate in that we have a wine room in the office, um, which houses like 3,500 bottles of wine um, and is owned by wine star Ray Isle, um, who proceeds over the wine room. And he was super kind and let me um, into it to practice tasting. Um, we both were kind of like, all right, we're tested. We're fine. So like I... I went and practiced a good bit there and like he would drop off bottles because um, his apartment is kind of like overrun with bottles at this point. And so <laughs> we were fairly close to each other. And so he would like come over and like drop off like 
six bottles for me to practice with. Like, hey, I did Riojas. Here's a bunch of Riojas for you to practice with. Like, here's some Tempranillos. Um, so if I didn't have that, I honestly think I would have been pretty screwed. Yeah. Um, so that is like an incredible privilege that I just like don't know. And I mean, it's worth noting that the course that I did did not include any wines to taste with in the course price. And it wasn't like provided to you in any way, which I thought was like a little bananas because you're just kind of like responsible for finding wines that, you know, not every wine is good to practice tasting with. You can't like, it's not, not like I'm going to go and like taste, practice tasting for my exam with like a super weird natty wine. Yeah. Um, and so like, there's just like a lot of specifications that kind of make it tricky to do that on your own in a remote setting. Um, so, so yeah, I was super fortunate that, um, that I got to use our wine room. And so, you know, I'm curious about this because obviously, you know, we're, we're one of the things that I and lots of other people who in one way or another have had to sort of move some of our, our business online I've been grappling with is kind of like, I mean, in the early days, it was like, how do I even do this, right? And now as people are starting to transition back into in-person experiences, and certainly that will be uh, quickening over the next few months, I'm curious, you know, this isn't necessarily about education specifically, but just in general, you know, aside for you and for, for all of you here too, you know, is there has this year been like, okay, that was a good stopgap, but like never again? Or is it like, hey, this is a chance to do something in the comfort of my own home, theoretically in my pajamas. I don't have to, you know, I don't have to get up and go anywhere, et cetera, et cetera. I'm just really curious if that, if those elements of it are going to remain persuasive to you, um, even if obviously for I think all of us, there was obviously a desire and, and in some cases a necessity to also have in person because whether it's the reality of um, getting access to wine or even just liking being around other people, um, you know, how does that, what does that, how does that kind of sit? Huh, yeah, I am, um, I was like talking, I was talking to a friend about this a few weeks ago and I was saying how remote college and remote high school sounds really scary and hard and I feel very grateful to not be doing that. Me <laughs> so and, yeah, it seems, it seems like a lot. And um, yeah, I guess, I guess there's a good part of all of this, which is that, you know, not everyone is in a place where they can like easily access uh, an APP that would provide like the WSET course training in person. Like, you know, it's it's a handful of cities and the exam itself is administered in the UK and they definitely don't let you forget that. So like, <laughs> it's like not super um, accessible in that regard. So remote, remote wine education is great on that end, but like, you know, as someone who lives in a, a major market and city, I probably wouldn't, I think, you know, I'm really glad I did level three. I think if I could go back, I would have waited to do it in person yeah. um, as opposed to doing it remote. Cause I think that ultimately, you know, for me, I, I still, I still don't know if I passed level three yet or not actually, but um, what I wanted out of it was really the knowledge less than like the certificate or like the you passed part. And so I feel like to maximize that, I would have really loved to do like the tastings in person and like the, you know, the, the synthesis part that goes into the essays in person, because there's only so much you can get from a textbook. So, 
um, yeah, I guess like, I think, I think there's like pros and cons to it, but ultimately I, I don't feel a huge appetite for remote education, but I really admire people that can do it. Yeah, for sure. Um, so let's, let's switch gears again. Obviously, if you all have uh, comments or questions, I'm always uh, happy to hear them or, or read them. But I'm also curious, um, as my neighbor starts up a motorcycle, pardon me. Um, I'm curious, let's, I wanted to switch gears a little bit to talk about maybe fun stuff for a little while, because these are intended to also be fun. And I think a thing that you, both you and I share a certain appreciation for and, and excitement about are um, almost any kind of alcoholic beverage in a can. Um, and I, I know that, uh, I, I feel like just, just being, uh, following your Instagram feed, there's a lot of, a lot of canned cocktails and canned wine products. That, yeah. Um, but I'm curious, like, you know, what is it about that format that is particularly kind of exciting to you? Yes. Um, yeah, I, I love canned booze. I think canned booze is awesome. And I think, um, I don't know, some, I feel like one of the very few good things about the pandemic in New York last summer was the complete lack of open container laws and everyone just kind of like hanging out in the park and drinking because why not? Like, who's going to really say something to you about it? And I think that cans worked really well in that setting because it's like, okay, this is a thing that has like one or two servings in it. I'm always a little confused when cans have multiple servings because I'm like, do you really think I'm like going to pour this into a glass for someone? Like, no. Um, but I guess maybe you will. Um, so I think it's really great from like a mobility perspective, but I also just like canned drinks because they're fun. They're not pretentious. And I think the canned cocktail story that Ray and I worked on for our April issue, we tasted a little over 45 canned cocktails. Um, there are some really gross ones out there and that usually just comes from like packing way too much sugar in there or just like trying to do something really weird. Like I think the simpler the canned cocktail, the, the better it tends to be. Um, and like some spirits definitely lend themselves to canned formats better than others. Like I think tequila translates really well into a can, possibly because tequila is my favorite spirit, but also because I think it translates well into a can. Um, so yeah, but like, I don't know, I like Ramona was the first canned thing that I like canned alcoholic thing that I ever drank. And I am like still very much a Ramona fan. Like Ramona dry grapefruit is probably my favorite canned thing that exists. Um, so I just think it's really fun. It's unpretentious and it's, you know, easy with no open container laws. But, and I think it also has this sort of other piece of it that's like, it's not just, I think it's unpretentious, but it's like, you know, wine in particular, but even, even spirits suffer from a sort of like, what do I do with it conundrum where it's like, you know, yeah, you can buy a bottle of tequila and just drink tequila straight theoretically from the bottle. But most people don't want to do that. And if you want to be able to have a cocktail, you have to have a few different ingredients, you know, at least something to mix it with. And for, for a lot of people, you know, you know, obviously some of people, maybe many of the people here, because you're all choosing to spend your time listening to us, you know, you might have a bar at home, you might have mixers, you, know, you might have, uh, you know, liqueurs and things like that. But most people don't, or they don't carry, they don't have many of them. And the idea of being able to have whatever the cocktail is on hand in can form is just like, it's one of these things that has been to me, like, as it's emerged, a part of me is just like, how the hell didn't this happen, like, forever ago? Like, it's not, 
it, it doesn't seem like it should have taken until the last couple of years to make. Yeah. It's been um, a big, I feel like the pandemic has been a great time for canned cocktails because no one's going to a bar anymore, right? Like, like you said, you might not have like a bunch of different bitters and like Amaro's or whatever at home, but like one canned cocktail that I really love is um, Bully Boy, which is based in Boston, does an Amaro spritz. Um, and it's just like really simple, but like a lot of people might not have Amaro on their bar. It's not like a very basic thing to have. So yeah, I think it just like, it makes a lot of sense. Did someone just say like, what are, what? Yeah, Elizabeth, Elizabeth wanted to know what your favorite. Oh. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I really she, like. She knows what to stock on the next. Hi. 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 Good to, I know, sorry, I have my camera up, but I'm here. Oh no, you're good. <laughs> Um, yeah, I really love Bully Boy's Amaro Spritz, which I believe they're rebranding as a grapefruit spritz. Um, but it's it's an Amaro Spritz. I, I wonder if it's just because there's like confusion around Amaro. Um, but I really enjoy. Oh hey, um, <laughs> I really yeah, I really like that. Um, I'm also a big fan of the Tip Top canned cocktails. They're like the little ones with the giraffe on them. Um, they do a um, a Manhattan old fashioned, but I think the Manhattan is is really special. And then there's another um, that Ray and I both loved, and it's Dash Fire. I think they primarily do bitters. Um, they yeah, might, I don't, yeah, I think it's a bitters company. I think they're like related. I don't want to misspeak, but um, yeah, they have a really fantastic Manhattan that's like a fig forward Manhattan, and it's really good. It's like 60 proof. Um, so it's like, it's like a, a real situation. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So like a lot of the canned cocktails we tried were like very alcoholic, but then there are like the lighter spritzes, like the bully boy, for example. But, um, yeah, those are some of the ones that I really, really enjoyed. But again, I think that like, you might not have a fig shrub at home. I do not have a fig shrub at home. So it makes really, sense. I can't believe it. you have, you have like the most incredible, again, based mostly probably on what I see on Instagram, but like you always have the craziest like mixers that I'm sure, you know, I, I just look at it and I'm like, this must be, I'm sure this is delicious, but it's like, yeah, it's like, you know, obscure fruit plus random spice equals delicious. Well, I, I get, yeah. Um, yeah, we, we actually have two bar carts because one was not really sufficient. So we have like the A team and then, I mean, the B team has some great players, but we do have two bar carts. So gotcha. um, yeah, we had to do that. And then there's like a cabinet behind my fridge where I put all the other booze. So I feel like we might need a, uh, we might, we, I, we're almost at the point where we might need like a tour of the bar carts, but maybe. Oh yeah. I mean the, the, some of the bottles are behind me. You probably can't oh, yeah. see. Um, yeah. I recently, during the pandemic, I got really into Genepi. Um ah. It's so fun. Yeah. Fort Hay, which is based here and everything they do I really love, has a genipe that is just like fantastic with tonic and like a little bit of mint leaf or something like that. Um, it's really refreshing and lovely. And I think that you, you mentioned something uh, there and I think it's a great point too, which is one thing that's cool about, it's not just about canned cocktails, but some a lot of this, you know, maybe stuff that people have kind of discovered over the course of the pandemic and may carry forward. It's like, I think there's been a great moment for sort of, low-alk cocktails where like you know most especially maybe earlier in the pandemic but maybe still for a lot of us like there's that point in the afternoon where you're like I would like to have a drink but whether you're still working or you know you're like me and you have a child who you know a little alcohol helps kind of take the edge off of but yeah. uh, a lot of alcohol makes taking care of the child much worse uh, especially the next day and so that like 
yeah, mix of a relatively low alcohol, you know, liqueur or, or preparative or something with some tonic, soda water, whatever, is a really nice combo. Uh, I'm really curious too, speaking, sticking with canned cocktails and maybe, you know, sort of RTS, RTD cocktails, whatever format, whether it's canned, bottled, et cetera. And again, we'd love to hear from um, any of you all, uh, your thoughts on this too. The thing that we've been- yeah, I wonder what canned cocktails people really love. Tell yeah, me please share. Uh, I've been debating whether, cause like we were just talking, I was just talking to, uh, about this idea of, you know, a cocktail is right, a combination of at least two, maybe three ingredients. And what brand on that cocktail is the most important one? Because we were talking about Palomas and that's a, you know, for those of you who, who aren't, don't know, it's essentially traditionally great or classically grapefruit soda and tequila, uh, sometimes grapefruit juice and sugar and tequila, or maybe no sugar, depending on your preferences. You see people making it with um, like, you know, grapefruit, uh, Croix or whatever, you know, sparkling water. And um, I'm wondering, you know, part of me wonders if some of these really well-known like sparkling water producers, whether they're, or, or, you know, Spindrift or whatever, that's like sparkling water and, you know, juice or whatever, are going to get themselves into the cocktail space because they're such a recognizable brand and really, does the does the spirit in it matter, or are we going to be driven by, you know, I want a canned Paloma from, you know, uh, Patron or whatever? I don't know. It's um, sorry, I just um, <laughs> yeah. There's a, there's a lot to read all of a sudden. I know it's a lot to read. <laughs> also, just like um, yes, Topo Chico does have a new spiked seltzer. Everyone is getting into spiked seltzer, which I. Um, I don't know. I, yeah, like I know Spindrift has a spiked seltzer now. Oh, I really want to, okay. yeah, they do. Um, I really want to do a spiked seltzer taste test. I actually have been talking to Ray about this, that it would be really fun to do. Um, to does just it, like, does it make down. Ray, does it make Ray's skin crawl to talk about these things or is he okay? Well, Ray has kind of gotten to the point where now whenever he gets like something CBD related, he'll just like kick it to me at like CBD seltzer. Like, take this millennial I just got pitched like, I just got pitched that the other yesterday so you know yeah, CBD seltzer. well I've now started getting pitched THC seltzer which is like maybe a step too far for me I'm like now legal in New York so why not it is but it also just that like that sounds like it's not going to taste awesome I, but, um, I mean carbonated bong water sounds gross to me but I don't know right, exactly I'm like this just feels like perhaps we're getting caught up in the novelty of it my friends but to each their own um yeah well, that's never I, happened before no, never. Um, definitely not. But yeah, I think that like all the sparkling water brands have sel have spiked seltzers now and they're getting into like CBD spiked seltzer and it's just like a big, how many things can we do while still pretending it's hydrating? Um, I don't know. I like, everyone makes fun of me because I'm not big into White Claw and I know that everyone is really big into White Claw, but I feel like I need to kind of find the flavor for me so that I stop getting made fun of. I mean, I'm not, but I'm also old, so I think I, I feel like I have a pass on not being into White Claw. I, I, yeah. I oh, mostly I... have missed the seltzer thing, um, although, you know, it's probably going to be unavoidable. I mean, I've had them. They're fine. But I think for me, the thing about it is, like, my drinking is, I like to pretend is a little more about what I'm, the flavor, and a little bit less about that buzz, and so, you know... I, I don't know. I'd rather get into other things. But again, I understand the appeal. And if I were slightly younger, I'm sure it would be uh, much more 
like, exciting. If LaCroix were to come out with a spiked seltzer, I would buy it. Yeah, probably. Like, like I don't know. I recognize that I'm being pandered to, and I'm here for it. Yeah. That's okay. We, I mean, that's what the industry exists to do. Um, I think the only other kind of general topic I wanted to, to touch on, and of course, you know, again, if you all have comments or questions, please feel free to share. I wanted to, to ask, um, you know, we are in this also very interesting time in, in wine in particular, but, but in all of beverage alcohol where, um, you know, we've kind of hit, hit at it a little bit with, um, even with canned cocktails where there's this kind of ongoing debate or conversation about kind of is wine too snobby? Does it alienate people? Does it, does it kind of push younger consumers away, push people away in general who aren't already into wine? And I mean, you're certainly, I think, fair to say a wine enthusiast. Uh, you know, you, you enjoy it and, and drink it. And I have wine. Say what? I said, I have enthusiasm. I have wine. Yeah, exactly. And, and I, I don't know, like, does, sometimes I read those stories or see those, see people say these things and it feels a little like, you know, chicken little, right? Like the sky is always falling, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But what, what does your read? I mean, does wine have a, an accessibility or an approachability problem? Oh boy. Um, <laughs> I know it hit me with the big ones right at the end. <laughs> um, I think I've been uniquely fortunate that I haven't met anyone who's been super snooty about wine, but I do know that that's me being uniquely fortunate. Like I know for a fact that if the folks that I worked with were like, you don't know what X is, like I would be very intimidated and like, you know, it, I didn't need to really touch it as part of my job. I chose to because I was encouraged to do so and interested. And I feel like, but that being said, actually, I'll sort of walk that back a little bit and say like, have I walked into a wine shop in like, I don't know, Williamsburg and felt kind of like unwelcome. Yes. <laughs> but and is that like, what, wine or is that Williamsburg? <laughs> I mean, it's a question, but you know, how much of that is like me projecting my own insecurities and how much of that is like actually the case is, is very much TBD. But I think that um, in general, I feel like it's kind of funny because I don't know. I don't, I think that a lot of times the, people who are really into natural wine can be snootier than like old school wine people, which is kind of an interesting shift in all of that. Cause it's like, oh, you don't know this like specific piquette. Like how could you not know this specific piquette? And it's like- Let alone what piquette is. Sure, yeah. And it's just like, I don't know. It's, it's ironic to me because natural wine is supposed to be about like being chill. And I know, I know you're like rolling your eyes and we could probably talk about this for a while, but I feel like for, it's supposed to be like a really chill communal kind of like welcoming thing. But then I do feel like sometimes, um, you know, that can feel sort of intimidating in some contexts. So sure. I guess what I'm saying is I've um, not necessarily felt that way personally, but I do feel like when I sometimes see threads on Twitter or even things on Instagram or like watch an Instagram live with like specific winemakers or something, I'll be like, huh, this feels like not super accessible and welcoming, even though that's kind of against the ethos of what your wine is supposed to be all about. Yeah. Um, so and that's kind of odd to me, but I also feel like that's okay. Like there, there are other people for whom it's for. And I think that, you know, you make a, a, a really good point and one that I, I want to kind of 
second and, and expand on touch, which is a, a thing that I find frustrating and, and as, a, as a wine professional found frustrating is there is a style of communication around wine that, that both assumes a certain level of knowledge and gives a very clear sense that like, if you don't have this, I, you're, not, you're not welcome or what are we even talking about? And, you know, it's a, even with, I, I've had this issue as a wine buyer with, with sales reps sometimes, you know, where like, you know what, I don't know every producer in, of Brunello di Montalcino. And if you just assume, I mean, I'm a relatively well-informed wine professional, but like there are hundreds, I don't know all of them. And, and it drove me crazy. I, I had a few reps who were like this and it was just a bad habit of theirs, I think, or whatever, to just kind of be like, oh, you know, so-and-so and just like, well, maybe I don't like that. That is a thing that maybe isn't certainly exclusive to wine, but I feel like wine is an area where it's so easy for people to feel intimidated or like they are shut out from the conversation because even dedicated professionals, just, you can't know everything. You can't know everyone. You can't how you can't have tasted everything. It's impossible. You can have traveled everywhere, et cetera. And, and just taking that small step to be like, let me explain what I'm talking about in hopefully not a condescending way in a like, you know, inviting way is to me such a fundamental part of any conversation around it as opposed to like, I mean, yes, maybe it's reasonable to assume that someone who comes in to your wine bar has heard of Chardonnay, but beyond that, like always best to err on the side of inclusivity and then if someone's like, oh yeah, you know, I'm actually very well versed in this, then you can shift gears. That's not hard. You know, I, I think it's just, it's so unfortunate when people are re repelled from this wonderful, you know, beverage and, and category by that sense that like, if you don't know it already, you're not welcome. Well, I feel like also this is kind of why some of the like wine MLMs and everything have taken off because it's like really, which I, I, I love a good MLM story. Oh yeah. Let's, let's get into it. I, I hadn't even thought about this, but yeah. I think this is why some of the like, you know, I like, I got a pitch a while ago that was like all about, or it wasn't actually a pitch. It was a conversation that I had with someone um, that was like all about, she was like really, really trying to tell me that like, I haven't lived until I'd had gluten-free wine. And I was so confused because I was like, what, what does this mean? But I also don't really want to engage. So I'm just going to like move on. Um, but I think that like, you know, because wine is like you said, kind of intimidating and like gatekeeper-y for lack of a better term. I think that it makes, it really opens the door for people to kind of have this like, you know, what is Scout and Cellar, I think that like yeah. is the big wine MLM and their whole thing on their website is like, you don't need to know anything about wine to sell wine. It's all about hashtag girl boss. Yeah. And like that kind of thing happens because it feels like not a particularly, it doesn't feel like a safe space to ask questions. And so misinformation is like, it's, it's really easy to have that happen. And so I feel like in a way, I don't want to say it's like anyone's responsibility per se, but when you make it a hostile environment to sort of talk about, these things that shouldn't actually be common knowledge to anyone. That's when you end up getting things like keto, vegan, gluten-free wine that yeah. is whatever, I don't know, the grapes were whispered to before they were picked or something. But only on uh, leaf days. Yes. only. Uh, on. And 
yeah, I think that's a really good point and something that I always um, try to kind of think about and remind people is like, you know, wine is, it seems to be inescapably going to be part of the beverage category that's just always going to have a certain, you know, a certain set of attachments to it, right? Wine can be extremely expensive. And so that can be very intimidating for people. Wine can be complicated in a lot of ways. And, and those things are inherently intimidating about it. And when you layer on a certain level of other, you know, kind of pretension that doesn't have to be there, um, not only does it alienate people, but you're right, it creates this whole space for malign actors. And, and I think we've seen that in the MLMs, as you mentioned. I also think you mentioned before, I think you've seen it, unfortunately, in natural wine, where some people have moved in and said, you know, maybe the, the sort of the, the pioneers in that space were well-meaning and well-intentioned, not always necessarily well-executed, but at least yeah, believed in what- Just off that language, for sure. Yeah, but it's, but it's, yeah, once you convince, once you convince people that there is natural wine and unnatural wine, then it's very easy for someone with a, with a, a bunch of bulk wine to sell to, can, to say, ah, this is natural wine, or this is not unnatural wine, so therefore buy it um, at surprisingly high prices. Um, and, and yeah, it's an unfortunate thing that is hard to push back on. I, I, one last thing I kind of want to ask about, and then, um, you know, again, if there are any other questions or comments, please feel free. This is maybe also a very hard uh, kind of, or at least open-ended question, but, you know, what are you, as, as we maybe are looking to, uh, again, sort of as we started, this, this sort of shift that we're going through right now, not just in restaurants, but societally in this country of things are starting to reopen, um, you know, people are getting vaccinated more and more every day. Are there places, are there stories that you're looking to, to investigate or places you're looking to go you haven't been able to over this last year that are, and it doesn't have to be even in wine, it could be food as well, you know, culinary scenes that you're interested in exploring, like what is, you know, if Rosette is getting on a plane in the next year, where is she going to? I haven't and I say even, this because there are a few PR people in here and I feel like I got to go. I haven't really let myself even think of that, honestly. I just like, I don't know, my like, my priority is to have a safe wedding in October and then go on a Congratulations, honeymoon. by the way, yes. Yeah, but that's like really kind of as far as I've, <laughs> as I've let myself um, think about. But I mean, I honestly... I I love New England and I would love to spend a little bit more time exploring some of the less media, uh, some of the places that have gotten less media attention in, in parts of New England. Like I love Vermont, I love Maine, I love Boston, um, but I feel like I've been there a lot. Um, so I don't know, I, I kind of, that's sort of, um, you know, I, I would love to sort of get to know um, some of those towns that I feel like have a lot of stories to tell in them from Connecticut to, to Rhode Island. So I'm, I'm pretty, I don't know, I like to stay close to home, I guess. Fair enough. <laughs> easy, easy train ride or whatever. Yeah, it does. Um, but yeah. <laughs> Amy, do you want to ask your question uh, off on mic or what? Yeah, sure. I was just curious, you know, of all the articles and projects you've worked on with Food and Wine, what would you say is your favorite? Oh, wow. Um, you can get more than one answer. Oh, yeah. well, <laughs> the, the can so, I mean, because print is the way it is, we end up working on a story for like, from pitch to it ending up on a newsstand, it's usually about a year. Um, even for smaller pieces, like right now we're working on 
January 2022 um, in terms of like pitch like layouts um, or at least like the pitch documents themselves. Um, so I guess when I think back, you know, the canned cocktail story was quite a while in the making and that was really, really fun to work on because of the testing and the, you know, just kind of researching the, like doing an exhaustive research of the category itself and then actually tasting those all. Um, but I also really, really enjoy um, getting to actually talk to folks who are working in, you know, restaurants, either as wine directors or as chefs. And um, last year I did a piece with Maria Bastach, who used to be the wine director at um, Maidan and Compass Rose in DC. Um, which is one of my favorite restaurants and just like talking to her about um, Georgian wine, which she's really passionate about and bringing some of those um, stateside like wines from Georgia and Turkey and in Lebanon and things like that. Um, so that was a really fun piece. I'm like trying to think about what else I've worked on. Um, yeah, I feel like those two were, were really fun. There was a, I, this year I did a Lunar New Year feature, which was really fun to do. And it was also a, kind of a big lift because it was an entertaining story and it was pitched and ideated in pre-COVID times. And then it was October of 2020 and we had to figure out how to like stage a uh, COVID friendly Lunar New Year party, um, which was <laughs> a little difficult, but- um, Also like rather- <laughs> rather out of sync with when actual Lunar New Year is. I know. Well, it's because all of those things have to be shot so far in advance. Yeah. I mean, literally this year, I'm really hoping to do a Ramadan story. And in order to do that, we would need to shoot it this year for it to run in spring of 2022. Um, so that's like really kind of how our timelines are. Um, but Magazines yeah. are wild. Magazines are wild, but I love them so much. I love print so, so much. That I feel actually, you know what? I actually have one question on that too, because I think that is uh, a really, you know, I was thinking about this myself because I was thinking that like, we, my wife and I, are, we just bought a house and we're in the process of moving. And one of the things that we are like, you know, there's a lot of things that you have to make a decision about when you're moving, which is like, do I actually want to move all this stuff or do I want to get rid of it? And, um, I, both of us to some extent, I in particular, like it pains me deeply to not, to like get rid of books. Like it, even if I know I will never open it again, there's a part of me that's like, well, what if the world ends and this is the last remaining copy of this book and through it, we can like, you know, bring humanity back to some level of um, enlightenment, which uh, probably is not gonna happen with like the random like mystery novel that I read 10 years ago and it wasn't even very good, but whatever, that's not, logic doesn't enter in here. Um, we, and so, you know, we're in this weird world in journalism where like, you know, newspapers, obviously like the print side daily kind of stuff is still struggling, but, but magazines, I can't like the tactile sensation of, of, of reading a good magazine is still something that's so, um, I don't know, just so satisfying. And I think now I'm trying not to be a question, just sort of saying it, but like, is that like, is there for you, is there just something about like having a piece you worked on in physical copy that just that thrill kind of is still there? Yeah, no, I mean, when I was still, I don't know, maybe this is, I'm totally the person who, when I was still going places at the airport, my first thing to do would be like taking a copy of Food and Wine and making sure it was in front of all the other magazines. <laughs> and I think that a lot of people on staff actually do this. 
Um, but I did it like without fail at like every, every newsstand as kind of like a, hey, have you heard about food and wine? Um, but yeah, it's because there's just like so much pride and love that goes into every damn issue. And I can't, I don't know, I, I feel really, really privileged to get to work in print media in 2021. Sometimes it feels kind of like an odd sentence to say. <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. I, I never really got into Kindles and I never really got into a lot of that stuff. I really like owning physical books and my apartment definitely can't accommodate more books, but like I still buy them. Yeah. Uh, so yes, I would say that working in the, on the print side of things is definitely like a massive part of what I love about what I do. And not to say that, you know, it's not fun to see how much longer that story can get in digital because what are pages and you can do media and things like that when it's online. Um, but yeah, I, I have like a huge soft spot for print and I subscribe to a million print magazines as a result um, and really love it, so. Excellent. Well, I wanna leave a moment here in case anyone else has other comments or questions um, on the topic, but uh, as we wrap things up, I'll say thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Great to see you. Hopefully you can do it uh, in person again before too long. Hopefully. And uh, yeah, and uh, again, thank you all so much for being here. Really appreciate it. Again, if there are any other questions or comments, now is a wonderful time for Thanks, guys. I know everyone's brains are like decayed from Zoom, but it means a lot that you chose to spend more of your time on Zoom. That's really nice. Yeah, <laughs> wish, we could, wish we could be doing this in person. Same. Yeah. That would also be really great. I want to yeah. never get people through a screen again at the end of the <laughs> <laughs> I'd like it to be a, uh, be a, you know the little uh a little intermezzo occasionally in my life i don't i don't want it to be that my i don't want it to be all the courses just that the occasional because you know people are all over the world and sometimes it's it's nice to be able to see them oh, it's just it. screen. for sure for sure well this was awesome thanks so much for having me zach I really yeah, my pleasure <laughs>